Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And with the passing of former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in April of this year, at first we thought, hey, maybe we should do a podcast on Margaret Thatcher because she was such a you know landmark female politician, obviously left behind quite a legacy. Some would say a contentious mm-hmm. legacy. But we thought that Margaret Thatcher might be a good jumping off point because of her contentious legacy when it comes to women and how women regard Thatcher and vice versa to look into maybe the bigger question of female politicians impact on women. Because maybe the assumption is that, hey, if we elect a woman to whatever political office, she is going to be better for the female electorate because she'll think about things that maybe men won't. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So you thanks for listening. <laughs> Write to us at momstuff at discovery.com. Uh, no, uh, but first let's, um, Margaret Thatcher is such a prime example though of this. So for a brief snapshot, now that hopefully, uh, Thatcher fatigue post, you know, post the funeral has, has maybe ebbed a little bit, let's revisit Margaret Thatcher just to get an idea of where she came from and why she was so important. And her British listeners right now are probably like, really? Do we need, do you need a primer in this? Well, yes, British listeners, everyone else does, especially our Canadian listeners. <laughs> just kidding. Right. Well, she grew up in a small market town of Lincolnshire and had a really special relationship with her father. It was really interesting to read about how much her father inspired her and drove her to succeed and kind of stand out from the herd, which she did in college. She studied chemistry at Oxford, so that's no small potatoes. And there she became involved in conservative politics and was elected president of the Student Conservative Association, where she met a number of prominent politicians. And pretty quickly, her attention shifted from chemistry, a male-dominated segment, to another male-dominated segment of politics. She became the youngest female parliament candidate in British history when, in 1950 and 1951, she ran as the conservative candidate for the Labour seat in Dartford. But uh, she lost. But still, she won publicity because, hey, youngest female candidate in history. Yeah. Hurrah. And in 1959, she was finally elected to parliament and she ended up climbing the party ranks and became education secretary in 1970. And she was not popular with a lot of people as an education secretary. One of the first things she did was uh, remove the school milk program, the free milk for school children, where she was known as Margaret Thatcher, the milk snatcher. Ooh. Yeah, that's that's some that's some, some unfortunate comment. rhyming. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, works out well, but yeah, bad. Um, okay, so in 1975, moving on, she beat out the party head to become the leader of the opposition in the House of Commons, becoming the first woman to lead a Western political party. And then in 1979, the big year comes. Margaret Thatcher becomes prime minister for 11 and a half years, in which time she wins three 
successive elections, and she ended up retiring right before the fourth election, but she was kind of ousted by her party. Basically, she was not going to be able to win that yeah. fourth seat, and rather than losing, she retired, which is uh, kind of funny because there was this Vanity Fair profile of her, and at the very beginning of the profile, the author talks about how um, he was talking to Margaret Thatcher once, and she was working on, she just started working on her memoirs, and he was like, well, what, what's the title? What's the working title going to be? And she said, undefeated. Uh-huh. And he was like, oh, well, huh. okay. I mean, technically, yes, but, uh, but of course, as prime minister, she became the first woman to lead a major Western democracy. So, you know, you mentioned her legacy and how contentious it is. Why did she become such a living shrine? As Claire Berlinski says in her book, there is no alternative why Margaret Thatcher matters. She opens the book talking about how all of these conservative uh, American politicians kind of went to, you know, kiss her ring when they were running for president. And why? What does that mean? And she, she kind of looks at Thatcher's legacy. And points out that, number one, she was the most vigorous, determined, and successful enemies of socialism. Number two, she's widely perceived to have reduced the terminal decline of Britain because it had been, you know, I don't need to tell you this, it had been the most uh, powerful nation in the world, but post-World War II went downhill uh, she actually viewed the decline as punishment for imperialism and socialism. But number three, as Berlinski points out, Thatcher achieved things that no woman before her had achieved. And she did so, Berlinski says, in a remarkable fashion, simultaneously exploiting every politically useful aspect of her femininity and then turning every conventional expectation of women upside down. And yet at the same time, though, still maintaining so many like kind of outward signs of traditional femininity in terms of she was very insistent, though, that her marriage be portrayed in very traditional gender roles. Even though she was prime minister, she still wanted to maintain the image of, you know, being a good wife and mother to her twin son and daughter. And, And she was also, for instance, known for carrying a purse everywhere she went and uh she also in the in the course as we'll talk about more in the course of doing all these things that women had really not done to the extent that she had she took no women along Mm -mm. with her for the ride no uh according to that vanity fair profile you know she never wanted to uh appear to upset the outward appearances of the old order because winning that power and that trust of the nation really required that she not rock the boat. So it was helpful to her, a lot of people have written, that she was so conservative. She, she's like, you know, I'm one of you, I'm a woman, but I am one of you. And in that Vanity Fair article, they do talk about how, you know, she really extolled the virtues of quote-unquote real men and confirmed the entrenched belief that women are unrepresent, underrepresented, excuse me, at the highest levels of politics, not because of ingrained sexism, but because they just chose not to participate. They were not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps like she did. But at the same time, though, even though uh, Thatcher might have some, some sketchy perceptions on women's aspirations, politically or otherwise, she inadvertently served as an inspiration to women politicians. Uh, for instance, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has said, quote, she set an example to many other after 
in that she succeeded as a woman in the highest democratic office at a time when that was not yet a matter of course. And that is something like, uh, regardless of political affiliation, seeing a female candidate at the time uh, made a lot of people uneasy. Um, and then going on, the Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago, Kamala Persad Bissessar, has said the decisiveness with which she led her government serves as a continuing inspiration to me personally on a daily basis. I mean, the kind of decisiveness uh, that's often referenced is with the Falklands War, where mm-hmm. she immediately sent troops in there. And I mean, the, the war lasted, what, 79 days? I mean, it was, it was an incredibly fast turnaround. And then um, when uh, some IRA prisoners went on hunger strikes. She refused to give in to their demands. And as a result, some of them died. I mean, she adopted the nickname Iron Lady for a reason. Initially, it was bestowed on her by the Soviets and she liked it. She was like, you know what? I I will. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. And it's interesting, though, that rhetorically, you know, we we associate her with the this notion of the Iron Lady, because while she's adopting that uh, those those characteristics of being very staunch and very determined, um, she was having to mold herself appearance wise to become more. I guess palatable for public consumption in the sickening way that female politicians are, are still have to do to an extent that no male politician I think has, has ever had to do. I mean, think about uh, with Hillary Clinton, all of the appearance-based attacks that she has endured, just as one example, Margaret Thatcher endured the same kind of thing. Right, and I didn't even know this, that she got vocal training with Laurence Olivier as part of her leadership. Right. And in that Vanity Fair profile, they talk about um, her teeth were mocked um, and just pretty much everything. And she went through a stylistic change. I think she did get her teeth corrected. Like you said, she went through vocal training, all of this stuff to try to mold herself into uh, inward and outward, this iron woman who really you couldn't penetrate. But meanwhile... You know, she, her politics were extremely conservative. She's known very much for aligning with the U.S. president at the time, Ronald Reagan. And uh, along with her conservatism uh, came some not so friendly for women policies. I mean, you, you mentioned that when she was uh, education secretary before she assumed the role as prime minister, she cut off the, the free milk for school kids program. And when she stepped into office as prime minister, she was trying to dig Britain out of a massive economic decline. And as part of that, she enforced widespread privatization of businesses. And with that, she froze childcare benefits and also didn't invest in affordable childcare. She was not about expanding government. She wanted to limit the size of that. And with that, ended up cutting a lot of benefits that we typically associate as being more women friendly. And I think it's interesting, you know, people uh, comment on her decisiveness and how they admire her for that. But it's interesting to read her comments that reflect that decisiveness because they do reflect a certain sense of like, oh, God, I'm a woman. Let me just do it. You know, men are all about talk. If you want anything done, ask a woman. But, you know, so people are like, well, you know, there's this debate. Is she a feminist? And, oh, God, she hated that term and she did not like feminists and they did not like her. But... She did set this precedent. She did chart a course, but she just it wasn't her priority to help other women while she did it. 
For instance, uh, you know, one of her famous comments is that some of us were making it long before women's lib was ever thought of. That kind of harkens back to, you know, the wave she made at Oxford in, in the sciences. Wendy Webster, a professor at the University of Huddersfield, said that Thatcher didn't see her career as having grown out of any kind of movement. She saw herself as a unique individual who had made it through her own talent and her own determination. And Charles Moore, Thatcher's official biographer, echoes this by saying, yeah, she benefited from the emancipation of women without showing the slightest interest in it. And on the one hand, I I don't see any problem with her seeing herself as, you know, a person who worked really hard to get where she was, not as being the product of a movement, you know, but at the same time, it's like uh, when you have that much power, it is disappointing to learn that, for instance, she appointed only one woman to her cabinet and openly preferred to have men around her. Now, that might have had to do with the, the fact that at the time, women only comprised 3% of British lawmakers. That number has since gone up, perhaps because of the example of seeing a female prime minister. But nevertheless, she did absolutely nothing to uh, invigorate women's involvement in British politics. Yeah, that one woman that Thatcher appointed to her cabinet, who has the most British name, she is Baroness Trumpington. Uh, she says that she she treated women like rather unnecessary second-class citizens. Yeah, there was also a great anecdote, in again, in that Vanity Fair profile, talking about how Thatcher was known for having a wrestler's grip of a handshake, particularly with other women. She just seemed to have open disdain for them. And as a result, uh, during the 1979 election, one UK feminist slogan was, we want women's rights, not a right-wing woman. So a bit of a a challenging relationship there. But I think, though, that within the broader context of this question of whether or not female politicians are good or better for women, Thatcher's legacy is such a a perfect platform to, to consider that. Because even though more politically liberal people will say that she was did horrible things to the UK and her policies, you know, have had negative long term effects. You still can't deny that she was an effective politician in terms of getting things done. I mean, she did stay in power for 11 and a half years. And the fact that, uh, you know, the quote that she has from 1982 about how if you want anything done, ask a woman speaks to what a lot of studies find about women and political power, which is that that is very true. If you do want something done, you do get a woman because we have to do it because the bar is raised higher for us to even get into the political playing field. Right. It's exactly what we talked about in our Women Coaches episode, where you have to be Pat Summit to even be considered an okay women's coach. Mm-hmm. So that bar is just so much higher. And this was talked about in an American Journal of Political Science uh, study in 2011 that talked about this so-called Jackie and Jill Robinson effect that basically, yeah, women politicians have to work so much harder than men due to this expectation that they're not as good or they're not as capable or they're not as smart. And just to give a little context of women in politics today, right now we hold a record 
20.2% of parliamentary seats around the world. And since Thatcher's day, the participation of uh, female British politicians has gone up from 3% to 23%. So, you know, a lot of progress, still a long way from parity. And um, speaking, though, to that Jackie and Jill Robinson effect, uh, what these researchers did was look at uh, legislation passed for male versus female politicians from 1984 to 2004. And they found that women won their home districts an average of $49 million more per year than their male counterparts. And that was held regardless of political party, geography, committee position, tenure in office, or margin of victory. And uh, the the message being, we're working really hard if we win. You know, once we get in there, we're going to work hard. Yeah, it's not necessarily saying that, oh, my gosh, women are so much smarter and better politicians, although these women are very smart and intelligent politicians. It's more the fact that, you know, they know they have to work so hard and prove themselves. That bar is higher. And so they actually said that, hey, you know, maybe 50 years from now, these stats won't be the same. Maybe women will be sponsoring just as much legislation as men and pulling in the same amount of money that they are. And they were actually hoping for that because what that would mean is that it's so much more common for women to be in office that they don't have to press so hard to prove themselves. But speaking of legislation, uh, they did find that female politicians were sponsoring an average of three more bills per congressional session. They co-sponsored more bills, an average of 26 more per session, and attracted a greater number of co-sponsors. And this is also a really fascinating um, finding. They found that women authored legislation also survived longer and was more likely to be deemed important. Now, that's not necessarily, that's women authored. That is not necessarily a a, a women-related piece of legislation for something involving, say, child care. Right. And the authors concluded that it's the women themselves, specifically their skills at, quote, law rolling, agenda setting, coalition building. There's that woman coalition building thing and other deal making activities that are responsible for the gender performance divide. So perhaps women are not only driven to prove themselves, but driven to reach across the aisle to get things done. I mean, and thinking about it, too, uh, and I, I know that we've talked about this before on the podcast, but imagine, though, being a female politician when you are, you know, you're getting into the game when you most likely are married and you have kids mm-hmm. and you're already juggling all of that and you manage to do all of that while campaigning and fundraising and everything that goes into it. Of course, by the time you get into office, you probably have some incredible time management skills, yeah. you know. Um, but looking outside of the U.S., uh, studies have found over and over again that women do tend to have a positive effect on governance. And the relationship, though, is not so straightforward as saying women are just magical fairies who can come in and wave their lady dust and everything. The lady dust. <laughs> yes. And everything is right with the world. But more so that open and honest democracies foster more women rising through the ranks who can affect change. So it's like you, you, 
you have a healthier system. The healthier system attracts more women and more women do bring more change for, you know, broader part of the population. Yeah, this Reuters story in December 2012 points out that there's a prevailing attitude the world over that women are less corrupt. And if they're in government or in the police force, for instance, they will make it less corrupt. But it's more like Kristen said that women are more likely to achieve these positions of power in the first place in those open and democratic political systems which are generally more intolerant of wrongdoing. And they cite examples from Peru, Nicaragua, Iran, Indonesia, and India on that correlation. In Peru, for instance, the perception of police corruption plummeted after 2,500 female officers started patrolling the streets. So even just having women in uniform walking around gave people the idea that, huh, things are getting better. And that also echoes the findings of a 1999 World Bank survey, which now this is very specific, found that for every standard deviation point increase in women in public office above 10.9%, corruption declines by 10%. So that's a, that's a very strong relationship, which is the more you, women you get in there, the more corruption tends to diminish. And Nicholas Kristof, writing in the New York Times, reported on findings from an MIT economist, Esther Duflo, who found that female village counselors in India objectively ran the villages better and took fewer bribes. But speaking to kind of a, a prevailing prejudice against women in politics, they weren't reelected often because people... Just assume that because there are female leaders, they weren't doing as good of a job. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, that even, you know, in an Indian village setting that still points to how just in the, the remotest parts of the world, we still have uh, often a prejudice against women leaders. Yeah, there was a 2012 World Bank report that there's been a lot of focus on India because of women's specific types of involvement in government and what comes out of that. And so the report credited India's policy of reserving 30 percent of seats on village councils for women with increasing the provision of clean water, sanitation, schools and other public goods in villages and with lower corruption in general. Yeah, and India is one of the nations that typically enforces gender quotas for uh, the, the having to have a specific number of women representatives in politics. And a number of other countries are also starting to enforce these kinds of quotas. And we did a podcast way back when looking into that um, quota issue because the thinking does go that usually you do have better results overall when you have more women in government. But let's narrow it down even more to look at women's effects on women. Essentially, like if you or I becomes elected to office, oh goodness. Miraculously, I haven't even started my campaign yet. I know. Well, guess what? You won already. (laughs) Does that mean, Caroline, though, that you're going to walk in there with uh, a legislative agenda that is pro-woman up and down? No, not necessarily, but there is um, this view from a lot of politicians that, female politicians, that we do need to strike out and help women. Um, this is called surrogate representation, introducing so-called women's issues bills, regardless of relevance to your home district. Yeah, and that's because only 2% of quote-unquote, women's bills make it through the legislative process. So there's an imperative for a critical mass of female politicians to rally behind that. And usually that critical mass is reached at around 
20%, which we are getting to, but still only 20%. Come on, we can do better than that. Now, going back to India and talking about women helping women specifically, Esther Duffler, who we mentioned a second ago, um, did a study of those effects of putting women in government and how they spent money, what they invested in. And in her September 2001 report, she found that, like we just said, women invested more in infrastructure that was directly relevant to the needs of rural women, like water, fuel, and roads, while men invested more in education. And you might think, well, that sounds like it goes against stereotypes and what people tend to think. But when you think about it, when you're building all these wells for people to have clean water, there tends to be less money for schools. So, I mean, I I guess the answer then to the question, just broadly speaking, is that, yes, when you do engage more women in politics, the results are usually more positive for women because it's not that to say that male politicians are anti-women, you know, just by virtue of being men, but simply because you might, you know, they, they might not think about certain issues that, that certain issues might not be quite as as relevant to them. And, you know, by the same extent, studies have found, especially in developing nations, that when you enforce policies that help out women, it is so good for those smaller and poorer villages and nations as a whole. Um, but what happens, though, when you're in more of a Thatcher situation where you do have leaders who might not align with uh, typically pro-women policies. And, I mean, and, and this does get into dicier political territory that we don't like to tread into too much in the podcast because a lot of times now, unfortunately, in the United States, you do have a red-blue divide often where, you know, for it seems like a lot of your more liberal politicians tend to be stronger on pro-women platforms and then conservative politicians are often labeled as maybe not so women-friendly. But in recent years in the United States, we have seen the rise of powerful female conservative politicians, such as a Sarah Palin, a Michelle Bachman, um, who have you know risen to the national spotlight. And I think it has left some uh, more liberal-minded women like wondering what what to think about. Well, Ann Friedman over at The Cut from New York Magazine doesn't necessarily think that this rise in uh, conservative female political leaders is a bad thing because she says true gender parity and equality is something that only a critical mass of women can deliver. And if we want a critical mass of women represented in all corners of society, we need to acknowledge that women are not politically united, which means we're going to have to applaud the advancement of women of all ideologies. Yes, even those who support policies that may undercut women. Yeah, because I do think that it is important to keep in mind that while you know, I might have, for instance, my set of political beliefs, what I, you know, want to see out of a government, but I think that it would be wrong to demand that a woman in politics has to align completely with what I think. Well, Rebecca Tracer wrote that, you know, women leaders aren't all feminist heroes. They're not out necessarily to just because they're women, pass bills, introduce bills that are exactly in line with what we necessarily think. It could kind of be said of Margaret Thatcher, you know, Tracer, what Tracer's saying could be said of Margaret Thatcher, you know, that 
these are women that are entering a male dominated field. And that in and of itself is a good thing. Right. And that's why I think the ultimate answer to the question of whether women in politics are good for women, the answer is yes, because even if the policy decisions that they make don't necessarily align with, uh, you know, women, quote unquote, women friendly policies, even if they might be more conservative or more liberal than we're comfortable with, even if like Margaret Thatcher, they have really not much interest in directly giving other women a hand up. They might be ultimately good for women simply by providing that kind of visibility right. that is so needed. Yeah, because that Duffless study I talked about, uh, her 2001 report, she did find, and this is just in India, but I think it could apply to a lot of governments, that women were more likely to participate in the policymaking process of their village if the leader of the council was a woman. And I think you can expand that to Western societies as well. The more common it is to see women in positions of power, the less likely you are to think, well, that's strange. I don't trust the way she might govern. Yeah, and um, there was a 2012 thesis that we found written by Ariel Katz, and she looked at a Margaret Thatcher, Golda Meir, and Indira Gandhi's actions and rhetoric regarding feminism and gender during their ascent to power. And she concluded that you know none of these leaders, obviously, identified openly as feminists, and they did not actively focus on women's issues or elevate the status of women while in office, yet... All of the leaders called on women to mobilize and pursue careers. And they explicitly encouraged women to mobilize as voters and pursue work outside their homes. So that's why I do think there's, you know, always going to be a nugget of positivity when you do have women as leaders, because if only for the fact that we need to just see more of that. Yeah. So, you know, calling themselves feminist or not, Women political leaders are still a great thing, something that we are desperately lacking. And I think that Meryl Streep, who played Margaret Thatcher in the film Iron Lady, summed it up so well when she she was talking about Thatcher. And she said to have given women and girls around the world reason to supplant fantasies of being princesses with a different dream, the real life option of leading their nations. This was groundbreaking and admirable. And I feel like that really sums a lot of this up. Yeah. So while, you know, politically, the political legacy of Margaret Thatcher is, uh, like I said, contentious, perhaps, when, um, you know, you look at her mark as a groundbreaking female politician, you have to take a maybe a, a, a broader view of it. So having said all that, I think it's time that we hear from our listeners about their ideas about this. Not only what they think about Margaret Thatcher or don't think about Margaret Thatcher, but but what are your opinions of of female uh, political leaders? You know, do we need more? Are they better leaders? Do you want to run for office someday? Yeah, I would love to hear from any aspiring politicians out there, male or female. You know, I just kind of what what the feet on the street thinks about all of this. You can email us at momstuff at discovery.com, tweet us at momstuffpodcast, or send us a Facebook message. And we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we will read some of those messages about stuffed animals. And now, back to our letters. Kristen, I have one here from Stan. 
Subject line, teddy bears. Very specific. He said, I just finished listening to your recent podcast on teddy bears, and it prompted me to write to you. I can remember as a little boy having two special stuffed animals, Arrow, a stuffed dog I had from when I was a baby, whose fate remains unknown to this day, and a bear named Kogi, who I was told that I needed to give up when I was around 10 years old. I now have a young daughter who has a fascination with giraffes, including her favorite stuffed animal, which is a green giraffe. I've had so much worry about the possibility of losing this giraffe that I actually went searching a few years back and bought a backup of the giraffe and have put it in my safe deposit box. I know this is nutty, but I feel it is just like any other kind of insurance policy. Thanks for a great show. That's so funny. A safe deposit box. That giraffe is safe. Yes. Well, I've got one here from Jan, and he had a stuffed duck, as I did as well. Um, but he had also a comment about names. He said, the other thing I wanted to comment on is gendered names for stuffed animals. While you wouldn't notice this in English, I believe an important factor in naming an animal might be its grammatical gender. In my native language, Slovenian, a duck, for example, is female, while a bear is male. Of course, the opposite gender word exists, like lion, lioness, pair in English, but it is used much less often or only when you want to exactly specify the sex of the animal. Therefore, it might be a more natural thing to give a duck a female name and a bear a male name or maybe children don't really care about that it would be really interesting to know more about this and i agree are there any academics who want to study the gendered names of stuffed animals please help us (laughs) some real highbrow research out there uh thanks to everyone though who has written in about stuffed animals the stories have been delightful Keep them coming, MomStuff at Discovery.com. You can also tweet us and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Follow us on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. Head over to Facebook and like us. And you can now watch us. We have new videos that go up three times a week on YouTube at YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. Subscribe so you don't miss out on a single thing. And while you're at it, you can head over to our website this week and get a little smarter. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 